Hi guys, my name is Adam. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Restored. Um, and one of the things that we like to do is um, intro um, our speakers, um, our teachers, and one person that I'm really excited to intro today is the one and only John Dennard. Come on, come on. Um, and also to intro, to share if you're um, new to the family, uh, why we, uh, we invite people that are in our family to teach, and John operates as, uh, in our family of churches, as a pastor there. So I'm really excited to have John here this morning. Um, he's really, he and Co. his wife, have been um, kind of like a parents to my wife and I, and I think many of you guys here too. So I've just been really, uh, just encouraged, um, just the gifts that John has and um, caring for you guys. Um, as I sit through a lot of the GC leader huddles with John, who he, John leads those, um, just hearing the things that he shares about how he loves each and every one of you guys so deeply um, is just really encouraging to me, um, just like the heart of a shepherd that he has. So I'm really excited to, to have him here this morning. Um, so I'm going to call, call him up. I don't know, you could just go ahead and give him thank you. Oh, yeah, you go. Okay. God, um, thank you for, excuse me, thank you for John. Thank you for um, like his sacrifice of time to prepare this message for us. Um, just thank you for, yeah, just like the role he and co have played in our church family. I'm um, just thinking about 10 years and just the critical role they've played in caring for myself and many others here. Um, just the gift that he is, Lord. And so as he teaches this morning, we pray that, um, he's reminded of how um, like pumped on him you are and how delighted you are in him. Um, and I just pray that we'd have hearts uh, of willingness and openness to hear this message. Um, yes, yeah, so we lift him up to you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I'm stoked to be here. You know, I'm also stoked that Scott Deal's here this morning. He, um, I think you guys know, um, Scott drives all the way from Temecula uh, to be with us from time to time and, and lead us in worship. Um, I, because of my role in the family of churches, um, I get to be in like all of the leadership communities. And so like I'm team members with Scott in Temecula. And I, I think there's a theme to our friendship. And that theme is, I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> so like we're like, to the most emotional guys I know, but we don't apologize for it. We're not sorry. Um, you guys, I want to have a, a good news, bad news conversation with you today. Let's start with the bad news, okay? Um, there is something that your soul wants. There is something that your soul is hungry for. There's something that your soul craves, and you cannot get it right now, not on your own. In fact, let me, let me just take another run at this with, with a question. It's like a, like a two-part question. And it goes like this. How should my life go, part one, how should my life go, and how is it actually going? The difference between those defines the longing in our soul. In other words, I have a mental picture of my just right life, but I see my actual life every single day. And here's another way to think about this. Uh, James Bryan Smith, in his book, uh, A Good and Beautiful Life, um, he suggests writing a letter to God right in the beginning of his book. 
it's one of the spiritual practices that, that he suggests. And the letter starts out, Dear God, the life I want most for myself is dot, dot, dot. The rest of that letter describes the life that you want most for yourself. It's, it, it defines what your soul longs for but doesn't yet have. So there's always something that I think I want or need or deserve, and, there, and I always don't have that. So if you're not totally stoked about your life, I'm telling you, this is the bad news part, right? Good news is coming. So if you're not totally stoked about your life, if you're not like 100% on your life, if you feel like uh, your life is not quite right, it's true. Something is missing. But you're not alone. And it's kind of normal. So this is actually a, a huge topic. And, and we could spend like a whole preaching series just on this topic alone, and we're not going to dig really deeply into it today, but I have a really awesome spoiler for you, okay? And um, you know, kind of like a preview for a bigger conversation. What our souls long for most is the life that we lost in the Garden of Eden, and your soul wants that life back, and my soul, it wants that life back, and I came here this morning to talk about how we start to get that life back. And so just kind of hold on to that thought because we're gonna come back to it a few times. But first, I want to jump way back in time to the early 80s. And I love doing this. <laughs> I love doing this. I love asking this question of this crew right here. Can I see who was alive in the early 80s? <laughs> a few of us were, yeah. Well, you guys were probably born in the early 80s, right? Yeah, okay, so you're technically, you were alive. Um, you guys, back when I got into ministry in the early 80s, we, I, I'm in ministry, and we used to sell tickets to heaven. That's what we did. And we didn't call it that. We didn't actually say those words out loud. But for all practical purposes, that's exactly what we were doing. And I want to give you an example. This is a, an actual example, a thing we did. I started out doing a youth ministry in Sacramento, and we used to produce these huge rallies. I mean, they were massive. And uh, it was in our student ministry. The rallies were called life rallies. Like, our marketing was right on point. Life stood for life is for everyone. It was really lame, but um, <laughs> that's what we did. They were called life rallies. And we set up these weekly rallies as a competition between like six or seven local high schools. And the whole thing lasted like six or eight weeks, you know, five or six weeks, something like that. And get this, the winners got a, got a, a free trip to Disneyland. All expenses paid, trip to Disneyland. And so by the end, actually by the middle of the rallies to the end, we had roughly 1,200 high school kids coming to our church every week uh, to do these rallies. And, and they were competing in these elaborate events. And we actually took the winning team to Disneyland. We drove them from Sacramento. We had a, a caravan of chartered buses. And we took like 350 kids to Disneyland. It was a nightmare, trust me. <laughs> but we did it. And we, and we got back. And I can't even imagine the price tag on that, but, but it was huge for us. Here's how a typical week went for each of these rallies. Kids show up at our venue to like a smoking hot live band. It was awesome. There was music and singing. 
Um, at some point, something funny would happen on stage. And then we had this massive competitive event, either in the room that we were in, which we destroyed that room every week, had to put it back together, or on our big church property, or somewhere in the city. So just think that through. Imagine 1,200 kids taking over La Mesa Village or taking over Old Town San Diego. It was a different time, trust me, but we did it. Cops never showed up, everybody was fine. But we, we did this huge big competition and at the end of the night we had an evangelistic message. And just to be clear, it wasn't a gospel message, it was an evangelistic message. Um, and the entire massive effort um, was all focused on getting high school kids simply to pray a prayer. That's all we wanted. Everything was designed for that one moment with those kids. And so this entire massive event um, was like this huge funnel the size of our town, and it funneled all the way down to one event in the life of an individual. And here's why we did it. We were selling tickets to heaven. That's exactly why we did it. And the cost of your ticket was praying a prayer. All you had to do was repeat the prayer after me. You just say the words publicly and your place in heaven is irrevocably reserved for you. Nothing can take away your spot if you'll just say the words. We used to call it the sinner's prayer. You guys ever heard that language before? The sinner's prayer. And it was how we thought about people coming to life spiritually. You know, like John chapter 3, you know, when Jesus said, um, you don't just come alive in your body, you have to come alive in your spirit as well. So just pray the prayer. Come forward in a service. Put your hand up. Say the words. And you're in. You're good to go. You're part of the family. In our minds, we believe that saying the words was the minimum entrance requirement for someone to get into heaven. Just say the words. That's all you have to do. Just pray the prayer. And the point was simply doing enough to secure your spot in something like a heaven, heavenly vacation that lasts forever, which also means the point was not helping you know and love and follow Jesus. That wasn't the point. We simply believed that praying the prayer obligated God to take care of the rest, even if it didn't look like God was taking care of anything. If you just pray this prayer, he has to let you in, regardless of how you live or what you pursue the rest of your life. A deal's a deal, and you said the words. Not gonna lie, I'm, I'm not totally stoked about that. And, and honestly, it, it feels um, a lot like a, a ministry confession with all of you, but I, wanna, I want a chance to clean this up a bit, okay? Jesus never sold tickets to heaven. Not one single time. You can scour the Gospels, and you'll never see a moment where Jesus was selling tickets to heaven. In fact, Jesus uses really specific language for why he came to earth. And he tells us that what he's doing is he's bringing the kingdom of God. So if you talk about the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus is all about the kingdom of God. It's the language that he used. Um, I want to read this to you. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. I think it might come up on the screen. Yeah, there it is. And by the way, I'm going I'm to read this in the New Living Translation. Um, here, here's what it says. Jesus went into Galilee 
where he preached God's good news. God's good news. Like, like stop there for a second. God's got some good news. I wonder what that good news is. And Jesus is going to say what the good news is. The time promised by God has come at last, Jesus announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Hold on to that last sentence, okay? That's one of the ideas that we're going to come back to. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Two verses later, in verse 17, Jesus says for the very first time, come follow me. So he's saying, the kingdom is here. I brought the kingdom with me. What's the next thing that you should do? Come follow me. And then in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus gives us um, like the main feature of his kingdom. And he does it in a contrast. Did that come up there too? Okay, good. Um, here, here's what it says. The thief, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So you guys, most of us, um, we have a really hard time with this kingdom language because we don't live in a kingdom. We've never lived in a kingdom. Um, we often think that kingdoms are obsolete, but they're not, and they never will be. Dallas Willard, he defines a kingdom, get this, he defines a kingdom as the effective range of one's will. Now just slow down on this thought. Kind of like take this one in on half speed, okay? He says the, uh, a kingdom is the effective range of one's will. And so that means a king's domain, his kingdom, reaches only as far as his will is obeyed. So beyond that is not his kingdom. Within that, it's his kingdom. He's obeyed only in his kingdom. So think of a kingdom as a place where what you say is what goes. It's the place where you call the shots and you make the decisions. Have you guys ever heard, my house, my rules? My car, my rules? My garage, my rules? My boat, my rules? That's your kingdom. You have a kingdom. Everyone has a kingdom. It means every single person alive has a kingdom. If you, um, this is how it fits in my head. If you draw a circle around the part of life that you're in charge of, that's your kingdom. And so everyone has a kingdom. Um, since everyone is in charge of something, that means our world is filled with billions of tiny kingdoms. Even those little babies in the back, they have kingdoms. It might be their crib, it might be their diaper, but they're in charge of something, <laughs> and they get to decide. Um, your child, like if you have kids, uh, yeah, your child uh, has a circle around the part of her life that she's in charge of, and it fits within your circle. At least that's what we think. Um, but here's the thing about kingdoms that might not be totally obvious. Our tiny circles always exist inside larger circles. They're always controlled by someone else or by groups of people. You know, the, the obvious example is our children. Um, I don't know why this works this way every time, but every time my son Tim comes to hear me preach, like, it's like Jesus gives me a Timmy story. And so um, uh, my son Timmy, he used to argue with me a lot, like constantly. Yeah, still does. I always win, but yeah. Uh, but he used to argue with me a lot. And, and I'm talking about like seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old Timmy. 
And uh, he did that because when he was little, he used to think that he was in charge. He used to think that, you know, like, I'm drawing my circle. This is the part of my life that I control, and you fit in that circle. It's like, nope. And we, you know, I would tell him to do something, and he would protest, and he would debate, and he would negotiate with me. And this went on and on and on until I figured something out, and I started doing something. So we're right in the, I, like, I'm right in the middle of one of his rants, and I literally stop him, and I go, Timmy, point to the dad. And then we didn't do anything until he pointed to the dad. And I said, okay, now you point to the son. And we didn't do anything until he pointed to himself. I was saying, Timmy, there's one dad in this room. And though you have a circle of your own, my circle runs all the way around yours, argument over, dump the trash. (laughs) That's the way it worked. And you guys, we could make a list of all the circles, all the large circles in our world. and, And we could literally say, point to the boss. Point to the coach, point to the teacher, point to the mayor, point to the whoever is in charge of that circle. We could identify who's in charge of that kingdom because no one is so sufficiently off the relational grid that their personal kingdom is autonomous and sovereign. Our kingdom always fits in another kingdom. But here's the catch. Ultimately, we decide whose circle we put our circle inside of. Ultimately, that's how it works. Ultimately, we all say yes to some kingdom. John Arberg, he writes this, quote, On earth, all our little kingdoms intersect and merge and form larger kingdoms. And then he gives some examples. Families, corporations, nations, and economic, political, and cultural systems. We could call that whole conglomeration the kingdom of earth, end quote. And of all of those kingdoms... The ones that we choose to give ourselves to are the ones that we believe will give us the life that we want. That's what it all comes back to. Our soul is longing for something. Our soul is craving something. And we crave the life that we lost in the Garden of Eden. And we put our kingdom inside the kingdom that we think is going to deliver that life back to us. Jesus is done with all those other kingdoms. That's what he tells us. And he's been done from the very beginning. Jesus came to bring heaven to earth. He came to make God's kingdom available to all of us. When he was teaching the disciples to pray, I know, I know you guys know this, but when he was teaching the disciples to pray, he taught about a kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. He prayed, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now Jesus says, come follow me because I have the life you lost, the life that you've been looking for this whole time. Jesus is saying, take the part of life that you control, pull it out of the kingdom that it's in right now and put it in my kingdom. That's his opening message when he talked about bringing his kingdom. And it's also very close to the last message that he gives us before he ascends back to the Father. Now, let me read Mark chapter 1 again. You guys don't have to bring this up because I'm going to read it in a different version. Um, I want to read it from the message. Eugene Peterson, he, he wrote that paraphrase, and I, I love his language with this. So it's that very first verse that, that I read earlier. It goes like this. Jesus went to Galilee preaching the message of God. Time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. 
I want to ask you, like, hang neon lights around that last sentence. Change your life and believe the message. So restore it uptown, how do we do that? Like, literally, how do we change our lives and, and believe that message? How do we practically pick Jesus' kingdom? How do we say yes to life in his kingdom? How do we take our circle that we've drawn and put it inside his larger circle? Well, I want to ask you to think again about kingdoms and, and think again about what kingdoms are. Like, how do we say yes to life in his kingdom? It, it's the effective range of someone's will. So if Jesus' will stops at the border of your life, just, just give that a second. If Jesus' will stops at the border of your life, you're not in his kingdom. You're not inside that. You're not inside of, of his control and his influence in your life. So putting your circle inside of his big circle is simply saying yes to what he wants to do. It's like saying, I believe in you, Jesus, and I trust you to give me the life that my soul wants more, that wants the, the life that my soul wants most. So let's go with your plan. We're always going to trust something. We're always going to put our faith in something. And Jesus is saying, trust me for the life that you want. Don't trust something else for the life. So here at Restored, we, we take this really, really seriously. In fact, we take it more seriously than any other church that I've been a part of. Like, I started working in the early 80s, but I've been in, in, in churches since the early 70s. And, and I feel like I've seen every version of the church I haven't, but I feel like I have. And we take this more seriously than any other place that, that I, I've ever been a part of. We t we, our plan is literally for Jesus' plan to be the most important plan to everybody. We think that his plan leads to life, and so we're saying, let's go with his plan. Want to know what his plan is? Here it is, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus says he's, he's, he's literally getting ready to leave the disciples. These are his final words. And he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. You guys, that's kingdom language. He's saying, I have been put in charge. God, my Father, has drawn my circle around everyone and everything. And then verse 19, therefore, because of that, because God drew my circle around the whole world, go and make disciples. Help people take their circles of control and put them inside of mine. That's what he's saying. Verse 20, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus, he clarifies his kingdom for everybody with amazing specificity. It's, like, it's crazy like how specific he gets in, in, in this whole thing. Living in his kingdom, saying yes to his plan, is all about helping people know and follow Jesus and following Jesus ourselves. The simplicity is stunning. The difficulty is staggering. It's so hard. It's so hard to get people um, to take their kingdom and put, put it in Jesus' kingdom. So it's almost like we, we're, we have to say, point to the Messiah. Everybody else is not the Messiah. Point to the Messiah and follow him. Well, guess what that means for Restored Church? Um, I, I'm the pastor of growth and development in the, in the family of churches, so this is um, what I focus on and what I think about every single day. Our pastors and our elders have, have chosen to take the kingdom of Restored Church 
and align our plans with Jesus's plans and literally put our restored church inside of Jesus's kingdom. We're actively trying to align our plans. And our guiding question is, what's our plan for making disciples? About a year and a half ago, um, that's the question that I brought to the pastors and the elders. Like, what's our actual plan? Like, I don't, I don't want to hear just like, ah, GCs and Sunday gathering. And it's not like they were offering that, but I'm like, what are we actually going to do? What's our plan? In other words, how will we help people know, love, and follow Jesus so that they too can get the life that he offers? Want to know what our plan is? Our plan is that we intend to grow disciples in life-changing gospel communities through sustainable shepherding. That's it, 13 words. Everybody can say it, and it's easy to say. I think it's, easy, I think it's even easy to understand. It's really hard to do. It's really, really challenging. In the short time that I have left, um, what I want to do is I, I want to just build out that plan a little bit because this has kind of all been um, behind the scenes in some way. Like, we've been talking about this with the leaders for about a year and a half now, and I, I just pound them with this question over and over again. I think I ask this question every time I'm with them, and I want them to go, mm, uh, uh, I want, you know, we intend to grow disciples, life-changing gospel communities through sustainable shepherding. We got really, really close, like the last time uh, we, we huddled. Um, anyway, we intend to grow disciples. Once again, Jesus tells us God's kingdom is here. And he's saying, change your life and believe the message. And so being a disciple of Jesus means allowing him to lead us into life change. That's the big idea. All the time for the rest of our lives. And the awesome thing about this is that Jesus has someone in mind when he thinks of who you can be. You individually. He has someone in mind. He's thinking of someone. He's actually thinking of you. And I, I, I don't have time to dig down into this completely. Um, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Ephesians 2.10, Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. They show us that each of us is an absolutely unique creation designed by Jesus himself. We are not mass-produced. You are not designed and created on, on an assembly line. You are a one-off masterpiece custom-made by a master craftsman. And that means your job is that if you're going to follow Jesus, um, your job is to become yourself, is to become your true self. And what Jesus is trying to do is help you become the truest self. Lewis Meads, he's, uh, he's no longer living, but he was an author, an ethicist, a theologian and a, and a seminary prof, uh, professor. And he wrote about the true self, the false self, and the actual self. Here's what Lewis Meads wrote. I, th I think this is going to come up. Um, Lewis Meads wrote, your true self is like the design for a building still under construction or the original design for a building that needs restoring. This design is stamped in the depths of us like a template for the selves we're meant to be and yet are failing to be. I think of this true self as the ideal version of us. Or if, you, if, you're, if you're coming at it from like a Jesus worldview or a, a biblical worldview, I think that this is the Jesus version 
of who we're trying to become. We're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to become more like Jesus. That's the truest self. But that truest self is stamped with your uniqueness. It's really hard to become our true selves. But it's who we want to be more than anything else. We want to be our true selves. In fact, I think not being our true selves is, is the core source of our emotional and relational pathology. Um, I, I collect quotes. I, I love it. it. It's like I'm a hard grader on quotes. And so I, I have a, I've, I've been working on a, a Word document and collecting quotes for like 20 years. This is my favorite quote currently. And it's been my favorite quote for about five years. And I've said it a lot. I'm going to say it again. The famous Danish theologian Kierkegaard, he was writing about his own sanctification, his own life change, his own growth. And here's what he wrote. Now with God's help, I shall become myself. It's like, that's it. If you can do that, then you're cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And here's the good news. The Holy Spirit is trying to help you become this version of yourself. That's a true self. Let's talk about the false self. The false self is a fake, made-up version of who we are. Again, Lewis Meads. Lewis Meads writes that our false self is an image of what we ought to be that is concocted out of false ideals. The false ideals are imposed on us by other people. They do not come from our true self, from the self we're meant to be. They're planted in us by sources that try to create us in their image. There are people in this world who want to twist and bend and bind you into a fake version of yourself. And I bet, like, you started to think about some of those people already. I say this all the time, too. The hardest life you will ever live in the free world is the one that doesn't belong to you. That's a bummer life to live. Let's talk about the actual self. So these two selves, the true self and the false self, um, it's like they stand in opposite corners of the room. And the one who stands between them is the actual self. It's, it's your actual self. It's the person that you are from day to day. And that means we're always moving either toward our true self or toward our false self. Every day, all day long, we're either becoming um, who, we're, who we were designed to be by Jesus or we're becoming a fake version of ourselves. This is the bullseye of our plan. We're trying to grow disciples in life-changing gospel communities through sustainable shepherding. Those are the crosshairs. We're trying to help you become the person that the Holy Spirit is trying to help you become. So that's, we intend to grow disciples. Let me talk about life-changing gospel communities, okay? Life-changing gospel communities, um, they help us become our true selves. That's what they're all about. They celebrate when we move toward our true self, and then they wave like red flags or yellow flags when we move toward our false selves. It's kind of like a warning, like, hey, like, I don't think that's actually you. I think you're over there. Like, that's what GC's gospel communities help us with. But the reason that they're life-changing um, is because of what they're made of. It's the, it, it's the conditions that they're made of. And I think that there are five conditions um, that make up any life-changing relationship or life-changing community. And I, I, I just want to tell you what the, what the conditions are, okay? Safety. Safety is the first one. 
and we're going to go th through these pretty quickly. Ultimately, safety is about anticipation. So again, let's slow down on that one, and, and let's like take this in on, on half time, or half speed. Ultimately, safety is about anticipation. Safety happens when someone reveals a weakness or a flaw or sin or brokenness or hurt, and they anticipate receiving love and acceptance in return. That's what they expect. That's what they anticipate. That's called safety. It doesn't mean that we're going to allow those things to remain in our lives. It just means that uh, we don't have to hide those things, and they're not going to be used against us. Safety is the doorway to life-changing relationships. It's what we go through. It's not enough, not on its own. Like, catharsis is awesome. Love it. I love feeling good about myself. Um, but it, it, it won't change me. I, I need more than that. Um, it's a necessary first condition. In fact, you can't, so the, the other life-changing conditions I'm going to mention, you can't get to any of the other ones if you don't have this one first, if you don't have safety. And this is where we always want to start with our GCs. We want to create circles of safety for each other. So it starts with safety. Second one is truth. When I feel safe enough with you, like imagine we're friends, when I feel safe enough, I become willing to look at the truth of my life next to the truth of God's word. I need both of those. Transformation is always preceded by the truth because we can't change what we can't see or what we won't look at. We just can't start there. Growth always begins with safety. There's, so he, here's what I say. There's something true about you, and you don't know what it is. And there's something true about me, and I don't know it either. I need you to help me. This is simply part of the human condition. We cannot know what is true of ourselves by ourselves. I could talk about that for an hour, and, and we, could, we could dig down into that. But the gospel makes it okay for us to look and see who we really are because there's no jeopardy of Jesus. So safety, truth. The third condition is vulnerability. Safety is the doorway into those life-changing relationships and communities. But vulnerability is how I actually open that door. When I feel safe enough, I become willing to look at the truth of my life. But remember, I can't see myself by myself. I need you to help me. You see things that I don't see. Vulnerability is how I get your help. It's literally how I access our relationship. So if you're a safe person, and if you're looking for the truth about your own life, then I am free to welcome you into the details of my life. And I do that simply by talking about myself, by taking up some of the word count in the relationship, and by allowing you to know me in real time. That's vulnerability. So safety, truth, vulnerability, what are these all about? It's the fourth condition. It's affirmation. Let me explain this. The point of these conditions is to believe the right messages. We're always collecting messages. The receiver's always on. Everywhere we go, we're, we're collecting messages. And, and my metaphor for this is um, we go through life carrying a good bucket and a bad bucket. And in our good bucket, we collect the truth. We collect positive and affirming messages in our bad bucket. We collect lies. They're negative and condemning messages. The messages that we collect in our buckets, they turn into our beliefs about ourselves, about the world of people, and about God himself. And then we live our lives based upon those beliefs. 
and we make agreements with those beliefs. The healthy and safe people in, in our lives, um, when we welcome them in through vulnerability, they help us affirm the beliefs that align with the gospel, that align with the truth of the gospel. And they help us refute the lies and distortions from Satan. Safety, truth, vulnerability, affirmation. Here's the fifth one, and I'm going to do this really fast. For like 10 years, like I taught four life-changing conditions, and then all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's actually a fifth one. Um, Caregiving simply validates the other four life-changing conditions. Just think this through with me. I can fake the first four with you. Like, we, we could be friends, and I could fake all those things. And, and people have suspicious hearts, and, and it's hard to trust some of those things. But caregiving is the one thing that I won't fake. It's hard. It's hard for me to care for you. It costs me something. It costs me time. It costs me effort. It costs me money. And so I'm not going to fake that for long. So think about it like this. Um, the first four life-changing conditions are like entering your password in a relationship. It's like saying, I belong here in your life. Look at these things, safety, truth, vulnerability, affirmation. We still may not believe that. But caregiving, um, it, it's, like the, it's like the second factor in two-factor authentication. That's what it is. It's like, it's like caregiving says you can trust that password, and, and I'm okay. So I have two asks really quickly. Two requests to make of all y'all. Here's request number one. Will you help us create these conditions in our GC, specifically in our GCs? Because we intend to grow disciples in life-changing GCs. Will you help us with this? And what I mean by that is put on safe behavior and wear it in front of people so they see that there's safety in the community. Do it in front of everyone. Show your friends it's okay to come out of hiding in your GC. So that's request number one. Here's request two. If you're not in a GC when you can be, like right now our GCs are jam-packed. I, th- I think that all of our GCs are like 35% over capacity. I'm not, I'm not lying. Um, but when you can, will you jump into a community like this? Like I think we're going to have some openings in January. I'm, I'm going to be working toward that for us. So when you can, will you jump into a community like this? Take your circle of control and put it into a circle of safety, one of our circles of safety. You guys, I brought copies of my book, and um, I'm giving them away. Um, And the reason I brought them, (laughs) wow, (laughs) impressive. Um, The reason I I brought them is because those five life-changing conditions, that book is all about those. And at the very end, I talk about, like, how can you install those in your relationships um, or, or the communities that you're a part of? So if you don't have that and you want it, come up and grab it. If you don't, I'm, I'll just take them home, okay? Um, so we intend to grow disciples, life-changing gospel communities through sustainable shepherding. I want to talk directly to the GC leaders now, and, and you can listen, okay? So I'm, I'm, I see you guys. I see you all, you GC leaders. Um, our lives, by the way, this is true for all of us. But our lives become sustainable when we pay attention and then respond well to what we see. You guys, it's as simple as that. It's like, like take simple structure and put it over the complexity of your life. But that's, what, that's how this works. If you want a sustainable life, if you don't want to burn out in your life, if you don't want to you know, spend your fuel down to zero, 
This is what it takes. Pay attention and then respond well to what you see. Most of us don't take the time to pay attention to our lives. And, and the second I typed that into this document, it's like the Holy Spirit just like downloaded like this idea. Here's what I thought of. Um, most of us don't pay attention. It's like our life is a car and we just jump in, start up the motor, run it as hard as we can until it breaks down and then it needs this huge massive fix. Too many of us do that. And you guys, I know what life is like doing that. Because I did that. I, I did that for a long time. And then I like, I totaled that car. I completely wrecked that car. So for me personally, leading people sustainably is all about checking the gauges. I need to have a mechanism in my life that causes me to stop to actually look at my, how my life is going and then do something about what I see. And for our GC leaders, um, this is like a little look behind the curtain, um, but for our GC leaders, we have a tool that we give them. And this thing is called the shepherding check-in guide or the check-in guide or just the check-in, whatever you wanna call it. Um, but uh, it's got two parts. And part one is called paying attention to us. And that means like us leaders in this leadership community when we, when we get together as a huddle. And the second part is paying attention to them. That's all of you. Like everybody who's in a GC, we don't just wanna pay attention to like our own soul, we wanna pay attention to you as well. And so question for paying attention to us is, how is your soul? That's the overriding question. And then there are five diagnostic questions in there that the leaders can go through every single month and they can pay attention to their lives. Uh, one question is about inflow and outflow. How full is your life? How depleted is your life? Um, one question is about the messages that they've collected. We take this stuff seriously. And then paying attention to them, we focus on the five life-changing conditions. But the bottom line is we're, we're asking the question. We're, we're trying to stop and look. This is not a reporting tool. I, I've been trying to tell the leaders that. It's not, a report, it's not about accountability. It's a way for us to actually collect the data on our lives and then talk about how we're doing. And here's an actual confession. It took me an entire year to figure out that I need to clear away all the other things I'm asking the GC leaders to do and make this tool, this mechanism, our main thing. Like our last huddle, like I, I'm, I'm kind of like talking about that again and, and I still didn't leave enough time for this and I still have, I have this mental picture of Joseph Yasso sitting across the room and he just puts his head down. And he's like, oh man, John, yeah, I like what you teach, but man, I need to hear about this. I need to talk about this. And, and I don't know, maybe that was the thing that I needed, to, I needed uh, for my leadership. So leaders, here's my ask for your sake. Don't just drive the car until it breaks down or runs out of gas. Like for your life and, and, and also just for yourself as a, as a leader, check your gauges. In, in, in fact, make checking your gauges one of your life habits for your own sake and for the people that you love. Give yourself to a process that makes you come to a full stop and actually ask, how am I really? That's what this will do, this check-in guide. And I think, that, I think it does it. But if it doesn't, help me make it better. Tell me like what it needs to be. Let's work on this together so we can give this thing away to other leaders. So I have some final kingdom questions. 
so here, here are three questions. Question number one is, so now you know what is our actual plan for making disciples. It's an actual plan, and we're, and we're working on it. What is your actual plan for being a disciple? Like, literally, what are you going to do to, to know and love and follow Jesus better and more? That's, that's where it starts. What's your plan for actually being a disciple? Question two, how do you know which kingdom you've placed your life in? How do you know? Like, you've drawn a circle around the part of your life that you're in charge of, and you've taken that circle and you've put it in a kingdom. You're submitting to a kingdom. And chances are you think that kingdom is going to give you the life that you want. How do you know which kingdom is most important to you? If you want to know what you believe about your kingdom and all the other kingdoms in this world, simply look at your life. Because how you live always tells you the truth about what you believe. It always shows up in your behavior. So look at what you're trying to get good at and who you're trying to become like. Look at, you know, how you spend your time and your money and your attention and, and even what you don't spend those things on, as dispassionately as I can say it, and without any kind of judgment, these kinds of questions will give you the data on the kingdom that you're most loyal to. And then I want to finish with a Game of Thrones question. You ready for this? If all the circles in the world, all the kingdoms in the world, decided to go to war with each other, which kingdom would you jump inside of and fight for? If it's the kingdom that Jesus is in charge of, God, what are you waiting for if you're not doing that already? There's an actual time coming, an actual moment in history when um, Jesus will draw a line around all of creation and he will take all of it back. There's an actual moment where that's going to happen. Revelation 11:15 it says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus, I just pray that as we think about your kingdom, as we think about the part of the world that you're in charge of. Jesus, I pray that we would want to align our lives with that. A lot of this is about our willfulness, and it's, it's hard to, to give in to a kingdom. Jesus, I pray for clarity. I pray for understanding. I, I pray for... Um, just the truth to live in our hearts. I pray that we would be compelled now just to think about, like, who actually is in charge of my life? Like, who am I trusting? Who am I depending on? Who do I think, what, what do I think will, will give me the life that my soul is craving for? Jesus, help us with that. We love you, Jesus. Amen.